Welcome to The Spectacular Century, conversations about 19th century performance and visual culture. I'm Kate Holmes, I'm a performance historian based out of the University of Exeter. I'm Jim Davis and I'm a theatre historian based at the University of Warwick. I'm Kate Newey, I'm a theatre historian at the University of Exeter. I'm Patricia Smith and I'm an art historian working at the University of Warwick. And we're part of an AHRC project working on theatre and visual culture in the long 19th century. So Kate, what are we going to be talking about today? We're talking to Dr Phil Wickham, who's the curator of the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum here at the University of Exeter. The Cinema Museum is one of the partners in this project and we've been using their collections extensively in our research, in exhibitions and with our students. So our conversation ranges over the origins of the collection, what's in it and what it means. Phil, tell us how the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum came into being. The Bill Douglas Cinema Museum comes originally from the collection put together by Bill Douglas, as you might expect, and his friend Peter Jewell. So Bill Douglas is a really important British filmmaker, made some amazing films, the Bill Douglas Trilogy, Comrades, but he was also a collector. And with his friend and flatmate Peter Jewell, over about 30 years, they put together a collection of about 50,000 objects looking at cinema and its antecedents. Bill died in 1991 and they'd always had the idea that their collection could one day found a museum that would be something that would be shared with other people, that would be an inspiration for young people for years to come. And so Peter was looking for a home for it. Peter's Devon born and bred and the university was keen to take the collection and so it came here in the mid-90s, open to the public in 97, and we've been collecting ever since. So we've now 86,000 items and rising. It was always the intention of Bill and Peter that it should be something that would be added to. It wouldn't be something that was in aspic. It would be something that would grow, that would sort of take on a life of its own with their collection as a, as a base that would sort of set a, a set a direction, I suppose, for the collection. So, yeah, so it's a living and growing breathing collection that takes a very broad view of, of moving image history. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. So I think one of the things that I was surprised about, you know, encountering the collection is that it's, it's much more than the title Cinema Museum really suggests. So, I mean, what sort of things are there in the collection that are related to 19th century performance and visual culture? Well, cinema doesn't come from nowhere. It wasn't just a, a big bang in 1895 and suddenly cinema was invented. It is the product of centuries of people thinking about different ways of seeing the world, being fascinated about the possibilities of projection, of the movement of light and shadow, about the way that you can make pictures move. So it's a culmination of various different things that have been happening for a long time. And by the beginning of the 19th century, many of those were already sort of active. A number of these kind of forms of optical media were already getting going. So there were already magic lanterns, panoramas, things like that. But the 19th century sort of saw them become industries and become entertainments that became part of you know, people's lives as our society became more democratised, industrialised, more people living more closely together. That allowed an opportunity for these kind of shared experiences to take place. One of the things that fascinates us as a museum is the idea of the audience, you know, the audience's response to what they've seen and how they have reacted to the things that they've seen on screen and how those have shaped the way that they look at the world. 
And you can see that through all the 19th century material that we hold. For some of our our listeners who might not actually understand what something like a a panorama is, would you be able to just explain what that is? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a whole range of different kinds of optical media that um, audiences were experiencing before before cinema came into being. So that might be obviously things like shadow puppets and shadow play in many parts of the world that have been going on for hundreds of years. There's also optical illusions. But there's also immersive media like the diorama or the panorama. So the idea there is that you have a, an image that is transformed in some way but becomes something that kind of surrounds you. So you're subsumed by the image and it allows you to have some kind of vicarious experience so that takes you kind of out of yourself and brings something else to your life. So in the diorama's case, it would be a, an image transformed by light. So you'd be in this enormous canvas and it would transform gradually from day to night winter to summer that kind of thing with the panorama you'd be going into a venue you'd be surrounded by an enormous canvas and it might be a view of a foreign city or landscape it might be a recent event like the battle of waterloo we've got a number of things on the battle of waterloo panorama so to take that as an example the year after the battle in 1816 the main venue that uh, showed panoramas, the Rotunda in Leicester Square, hosted a huge panorama of the battle. So you had a number of scenes of the battle. You would go in, but it wouldn't just be a visual entertainment. It would be a multimedia experience where you would have sort of sound effects. You would have smoke. You would have light. All these things to make you feel that you were on the battlefield, but obviously without the risk of actually getting killed. So it was somewhere where you could experience a life that was not like your own, effectively. I think it's really fascinating because one of the things that we're very interested on this project has been about this idea of, of 19th century audiences as being active. And that very much seems to sort of demonstrate audiences as being engaged in a really strong way in the 19th century yes i think that's always the case i think audiences are always active in some ways i always think it's a bit of a misnomer that you know audiences are couch potatoes and it just kind of you know ebbs over them so in the 19th century optical entertainments there was a dynamic between the audience and the showman which obviously would have probably been male at the time and there would be an interaction between them the audience would respond in various different ways and the entertainments would allow for a sort of range of different kinds of reaction and response you know in an immersive entertainment the idea is that you become immersed and therefore it's something that sort of reacts to your particular situation your particular view and that'll be different in different cases if you look at an entertainment like the Magic Lantern, which is the most popular 19th century entertainment, the audience would have been looking at the screen and the showman would be manipulating images while telling stories. And it's an entertainment which is performed and the audience would respond in the same way as they would to a theatre show or something. They are is a performance to which they are an active part and you know it couldn't exist without them in the same kind of way. So, yeah, I think that idea of an active audience is is very important and that's seen through these kinds of entertainment. That's really fascinating. You mentioned the showman. What are the traces of performers in the collection? Pre the cinema, I suppose. I mean, we know that you've got masses of material on stardom, for example. How does the collection track pre-cinema performers? Well, in a way, it's difficult because the performers were often quite anonymous. In the case of the panorama, they'd be produced by lots of different people and the performer wouldn't have been there 
necessarily live, but they would be setting up an entertainment for people. There would be a sort of lead painter who would be doing the events. But the Magic Lantern and earlier forms like the Peep Show is very much a live performer engaging with the audience. So in the Magic Lantern's case, there are a number of traces of the performances and performers. So even if it's in, in mice and figurines we have of, of lanternists, you know, with their lanterns. So this shows that they're familiar figures that people would have recognised and understood. But also you have written scripts that would be used by lanternists for particular sets of slides. You would have bills of particular performances. There were some engagements with showmen on different kind of scales. So even with the panorama in the 1860s, you would have somebody like Albert Smith, who did extremely successful performances of the ascent of Mont Blanc, for example, or a trip to China and back. And that was all entirely based around his rapport with the audience. He would appear on stage showing the different images of the panorama and pointing at things with a stick while telling the stories. And he was one of a number of performances that would have guided those images. So it's around the relationship between the performer, the image and the audience. I think this is really fascinating because what what you're pointing out is, as you said at the start, cinema didn't come from nowhere. And there's this real fascination with bursting the bounds of these various genres to jam them all together, that in a way... We sometimes talk about cinema releasing a whole lot of things. In a sense, cinema had to come out of of all of this. I'm trying not to talk about the technological imperative, you know, that cinema was inevitable, but it's almost like it was a logical progression of all of this theatrical and visual work that's trucked by what a lot of people call now ephemera. But in fact, these are the really significant items in the collection, aren't they? They're not ephemera. They're actually really important historical documents, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about ephemera, is if you keep it, you know, and it's called ephemera because its original purpose was ephemeral, but you don't have to go along with that. You can, if you keep it, and it, it then forms a piece of vital evidence about the way in which people understood and consumed and engaged with the things that they saw and you put it together with lots of other similar pieces and you can draw a picture of what that life might have been like. You know, it's like a often draw on Raymond Williams' idea of the structure of feeling. You know, it gives you a sense into what people's understanding was of the world in which they lived. So, yeah, this kind of material allows a way in to understanding what it might have been like to have gone to those shows, to, to be part of that visual entertainment world that existed in the 19th century. And these kind of optical media... A lot of people get very, very irate about the term pre-cinema in the world that studies these kind of materials. And I kind of understand that is in the, in the sense that they are not just waiting for cinema to happen. They are things that are important entertainments, important pieces of visual culture in their own right. They have a particular effect. They are meant to engage an audience in a particular way. They're not just bad versions of cinema that wasn't quite ready yet. you know. But what they do do is inform what cinema became. Something like the Magic Lantern sets up a structure for the audience. If you went to a Magic Lantern show in 1865, it would look pretty much like a cinema show 60 years later. A number of people lined up facing a screen and seeing an entertainment before their eyes. And they're together with a load of people that they don't know. That's really important, I think. So it's a shared collective experience. Obviously, drawing on theatrical models 
suppose it's an interesting intermediary between that and the cinema screen in the sense that you do have a live person there setting up these these kind of visual treats for the audience and later on that interlocutor will disappear but it's a kind of bridge between those things but there are definitely ways in which it sets up an audience that understands what cinema is when it comes out because it's drawing on things that they've seen for many many years and things that they've understood. I think your connection of the visual entertainments with theatrical entertainments is really also very important. You know, I'm thinking, again, the Raymond Williams notion of the structure of feeling around things like melodrama, for example. And we talked about that in an earlier podcast, that that melodramatic structure of feeling is so normalised nowadays, we don't really even see it, I think. But what, what you're talking about makes these things very visible, in a really interesting ways, yeah. I think it's also really interesting because they weren't cutting-edge innovations of their time. The panorama required a certain type of scenic painting technique, so to frame it in the way that you have, I think, is, is really, really useful. You talked about ephemera, and you've mentioned some of the types of, of items that are in the collection, such as figures and magic lantern slides, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the range of, of different types of materials you actually have, because I think some of that might be surprising in some respects. Yeah, there's a whole range of different kinds of materials related to these shows, and sometimes there are interesting gaps. So for a panorama, what you never get is the actual panorama, because these were enormous canvases that often then would have been in place for some years, might then have travelled, so they very rarely survived and they might then have been painted over. But what you do get, for example, with the panorama is a key, a sort of document. It's like a programme that would have been sold at the show that explains what the different paintings are for the audience. We've also got things like tickets, we've got mini reproductions of prints of some of the scenes of the panorama. So our extremely rare full set of prints of the first panorama in England, the Albion Mills panorama in 1792, shown in London at that time. We also have with lanterns, we as well as the slides and some actual lanterns, as I say, we will have some lantern lectures. We have some notes that would have been printed and used by people for the shows. And we have all these kind of different traces through programmes are always a fascinating item, programmes and handbills showing the shows and showing the variety of things that might have been in a show. So there's all these different kinds of evidence and traces. And of course, they're the evidence that remains. There are plenty of other things that just don't survive. But as I say, what is important about ephemera, whether it's for cinema or for these earlier optical media, is that you have this idea of something that is produced for a particular function. You know, it's to tell you that a show is on next Thursday. And now, theoretically, it doesn't have a use next Friday. But actually, if you keep it, then it can tell you an awful lot, both about the show itself, but also the content in, context in which it was created and seen by the audience. And just to give a plug, if people want to look at playbills from the Bill Douglas collection, we've done a YouTube video about those. I'm personally fascinated by the way that playbills give me as a theatre historian so much information about what was on and when, who was performing, but also the way the playbills work, as you say, to create that common shared experience from a group of people who might be strangers to each other the way the playbill it's advertising on one hand but it's also creating an audience Um, so you can see on our youtube channel you can see some examples of some of the really beautiful playbills that we have here in the bill douglas collections and there's also another another video as well which is looking at some postcards of music hall performers So I think it's really interesting that some of those playbills 
is because they had short films in the early days of film. Is that is that why they've been collected? Yeah, there's, there's, so we're looking for things that show moving image in its widest context. So some of the things that Kate has just referred to, which are earlier, might have a panorama or a diorama as part of a theatrical experience, some of the stuff from the early 19th century. But we have huge amounts of musical material because there would have been early films shown as part of that musical programme. So people like R.W. Paul, probably the most important British early filmmaker, would have shown his animatograph films at big musical venues, variety venues, like the Hippodrome or the Alhambra or the Empire, as part of a programme of live performances. And of course, gradually, cinema kind of overhauled the musical, but they coexisted together for some considerable time. So what's your favourite object in the collection? I guess my favourite 19th century object is pretty hard to beat the original Praxinoscope. Which is the Praxinoscope. It's a variant of the zoetrope that is easier to look at. So it's an animated toy where you have a glass drum in the middle with a number of different sides. You would have a a strip of different drawings. So it might be like a horse running or a bird flying in different positions. And then when you put it, the strip into the Praxinoscope, you would look into the glass drum, you'd whiz it around, and it looks like a bird in flight or a horse galloping. Creates this illusion of movement. And we've got a couple of the originals. They're very beautiful. They have this little hood because they would have had a candle above to illuminate it. One of them is a Praxinoscope theatre, so you would actually have a proscenium arch that would be put onto the front of this so that you're seeing one image at a time. So it's like a theatrical show where you're seeing this image of, you know, the bird flying through these different different stages, which creates a different kind of experience through the animated toy, combining theatre with this early form of animation in a really unusual way. And they're very beautiful things, you know, so uh, that's probably my favourite 19th century one, I would say. And I know that you've got some demonstrations of these objects on the Bill Douglas website. Is that one that you've got demonstration? Can we play with it? I think we do. I have to check, but I think so. Yeah, we have and we have replicas of the Praxinoscope in the gallery, so everyone can have a go. We've got a number of replicas of the animated toys that anyone can come in and have a have a play with just to see how they all worked. It's a, a huge collection of material because Peter and Bill start off as cinema fans obviously they remain but as they go on they become really fascinated by these kind of early forms of moving images and about this long history of the moving image first of all it's silent films and then they get interested in early film and then they go back even further so there's a wonderful piece of footage of bill demonstrating the praxinoscope on film in their flat in soho in the 70s where, you know, kind of he gets it out, puts it together, and you just show the fascination and wonder that he feels using it. So they found these kind of objects particularly fascinating, and they became very expert in this kind of early optical culture. And, of course, Bill incorporated that in his film Comrade. So this film about Tolpot of Martyr's struggle, Dorset farm labour in the 1830s. So he finds a way of telling the story using part of his collection. In a, in a kind of Brechtian motif, there is a character played by Alex Norton who appears in 13 different guises as different kinds of showmen demonstrating these kind of optical media. And it has a metaphorical effect of this is a different way of seeing the world, seeing the world in a new way through these different forms of optical media. So you'd have a diorama, a panorama, a lantern, a thaumatrope, a shadow puppet, all of these kind of different things. And that shows the depth of his fascination for this and the way that he thought 
they tied in with other kinds of storytelling. Comrades is a wonderful film, actually. It's a love letter to the Dorset landscape, but it also shows how hard life was in those times and and that the showman is this thread of pleasure through... I mean, you really do get a sense from that film of all the things you've been saying about the experience of, of ordinary people. And, of course, we've been working in other parts of this project with Dr Tony Liddington, who also collaborates with the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum in reconstructing the Peep Show. So we're trying to really think of ways of bringing these really moving experiences into the 21st century, I suppose. But what's your oldest thing in the collection? Well, the oldest things we have are a couple of books, the oldest things we can date anyway, a couple of books. The first description and the first illustration of a projected image published in Britain. So Della Porter's Magic Naturalis, which is from 1658, which is the book describing the first things in latin but describing a projection and what it looks like is probably the oldest item that we have in the collection and then we have the first illustration which is from 1671 wow that's amazing so really your point earlier about people taking issue with the term pre-cinema or pre-cinematic is a very good point because the history of people's fascination with the moving image or the replicated moving image goes way that's 300 years yeah yes yeah Yeah. i mean the term pre-cinema doesn't bother me too much in the sense that it is before cinema which is fine but it is important to bear in mind that these are just they're not just failed attempts at cinema that people weren't clever enough yet it's not like that at all people had different ways of seeing different ways of understanding Mm. images and they are all very complex and fascinating in their own way Later on, at the end of the 19th century, there's certain technological innovations that allow what we understand as cinema to combine the idea of persistence of vision, the brain retaining information and reading it as movement with photography. But before that, then there's lots of different ways of understanding projection, light and shadow, moving pictures that are equally as valid and when we get little kids in you know playing on these replicas they're you know they're just as fascinated as somebody in you know 1750 you know we find you know so it's uh, it's that sense of wonder doesn't leave you one of the things that i also really love about the collection is these haptic experiences there's like a feedback mechanism that is that isn't something that cinema has you know where you have more of that interactive experience uh, which you know I, f- I find very exciting so i just wondered if somebody actually wants to visit bill douglas cinema museum how would they do that as a member of the general public you know if they wanted to come to use it for their research you know how would those different experiences differ so that they could come along and experience the joys of the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum. Well, we're a public museum. We're free and open to everybody every day, 10 to 5 every day. The galleries are open. And, you know, we're, we're just as available to the public as we are to students. You know, we just we happen to live on a campus, but we're, we're there for everybody. For researchers, we share the Special Collections Reading Room, and that's available by appointment from Monday to Friday, 10 to 5. And so you can just get in touch with us and, and ask to arrange an appointment, and you can create a collection through our website website we have our catalogue is all online listed uh, what we hold you could create a collection of things that you'd like to see through that and you just send us a link and we'd have those ready for you when you arrive at the reading room so it's uh, you know 
everything is available to everybody, basically. Often, you know, you find that if you visit an archive, that not everything is catalogued. Is the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum well catalogued? Yeah, pretty much everything is catalogued. Obviously, you know, there's, there's a time taken to do it, but yeah, everything is catalogued. So if we've catalogued it, it's listed on our site. There are sometimes some images, not for everything, but there are some images on the site, and you're welcome to anybody's welcome to download those as well. But yeah, we we have a very full catalogued available open collection fantastic thank you very much phil yeah thank you that's been really interesting to hear some of the background of the material that we've been using in this project you're welcome this podcast is supported by the university of exeter drama department and the arts and humanities research council